Good morning and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. I'm your editor, Bryce. And I'm your co-host, Erica. Today, I'm going to be telling you guys about Cassie Stoddart. So pour yourself a strong cup of joe and let's dive in. Before we jump into this episode, I wanted to give a very big thank you to our first three official patrons that have subscribed to our Patreon account, Lindsay, Camille, and Jeanette. So thank you very much. Looks like everyone so far has been interested in our top tier extra shot subscription, which gets you things like extra content, Monday minis, and these full episodes a whole day early. So if any of you are interested in that, please head over to our Patreon account. You can just search Crime Over Coffee on there or go to patreon.com slash crimeovercoffeepod. So again, thank you very much for supporting us and we can't wait to bring you more content. This is a listener case suggestion coming from Landon M. So thank you, Landon. Cassie Jo Stoddart was born on December 21st, 1989. And at the time of our story, she was a student at Pocatello High School and was dating a guy named Matthew Beckham. Cassie and her boyfriend Matthew hung out a lot with their mutual friends, Brian Draper and Tori Adamchek, who were 16. On September 22nd, 2006, Cassie had been house-sitting for her cousin, and had invited her boyfriend to come over and hang out. And while they were hanging out, they decided that they wanted to invite some of their other friends, so they invited Brian and Tori over as well. And the two of them arrived around 6.30 at night. They hung out for a couple hours, and then Tori and Brian left, saying that they were going to go to a movie. It was around this point that Matt called his mom and asked if he could stay the night with Cassie, but his mom said no. She did, however, say that Cassie could come and stay with them for the night if she would like, but she said that she had to let the animals out really early, so she was just going to stay at her cousin's house. Well, of course his mom said no, because how old are they at this point? 16, 17. 16, so that's that's not too surprising. But I guess for a little recap, so we have, I guess what would be the two mainish characters, uh, Cassie and Matt, right? They're dating. And then their two friends, both guys, Tori and Brian, right? Yes, that's correct. And so Matt and Cassie were just kind of hanging out until his mom came to pick him up. And while they were waiting for it, they decided they were going to watch a movie. And during this movie, the power goes out for a little bit and the dogs start acting really crazy. And Matthew just assumed that it's, you know, because the power goes out. My dog specifically hates when anything changes. He doesn't like new things. So the power hasn't gone out recently, but I'm assuming he'd probably freak out as well. It was also at some point during the night that Matt and Tori had a phone call while he was still at Cassie's house. And I don't know the exact premise of the phone call, but I know that it was mentioned that Matt's mom was going to come pick him up. But Tori was whispering quite a bit. And Matt was like, why are you whispering? And Tori's like, remember, we went to the movie. And so he's like, I got to be quiet. I'm here. Matt's mom then picks Matt up around 11, 1130 ish at night. And Matt tells Cassie that he'll call her when he gets home. Around 12.15 a.m., Matt calls Cassie, but she doesn't answer her phone. And I don't know if Matt just assumed that she fell asleep because I'm really bad about that. I'll be like, text me when you get home, but it'll be late at night and I'll be asleep by the time they get home. And you said this was circa 2006? Yes. So, I mean, for, so I was thinking about the fact that the power was out. So I was also wondering, like, is 2006 early enough that your average 16-year-old would have a phone? Maybe. So either, you know, if there was a landline, she obviously couldn't pick that up at the fo- if the power was out, but also her phone could have died because she couldn't charge it. The power was back on before, oh, was, okay. before, yeah, before Matt left. Okay, but this was, so they did have cell phones. So either way, because the power was back on, 
he could have called anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. The next morning, September 23rd, throughout the day, Matt calls Cassie about 15 times trying to get a hold of her. And she doesn't answer at all. So he tells her mom, and Anna calls Cassie multiple times throughout Saturday, calls her, texts her. Neither of them hear back from Cassie at all. That evening, Matt goes over and spends the night with Tori and his family and just kind of hangs out. But then he's really concerned about Cassie, so because she won't answer the phone. So she asks Tori if he'll take him over to Cassie's house that she's been house sitting. But Tori says he doesn't have enough gas in his car to get there and back. So they don't go and check on Cassie. And Matt spends the night at Tori's house. So around the age of 16 or 17, some of these kids might have cars and some of them might not. So Matt needed a ride which is why his mom picked him up. Yeah, Matt's the only one I don't know the exact age of. I know Tori and Cassie and Brian were all 16. But at this point, he hasn't actually gotten the opportunity to just go over there and see if she's okay. Correct. His mom wouldn't take him or he didn't try that route or anything? I don't know if he tried that route or not. Although I guess it would have been, you know, later on throughout the day of like more and more calling of like, she's not picking up. So it's possible he wasn't even home anymore because he went to go hang out with Tori. Mm -hmm. The next day, which was Sunday, September 24th, Cassie's family is really starting to worry because they have not heard from her. So her mom keeps trying to call her. And then around 1.15 in the afternoon, Cassie's cousin's family arrives back home from their trip to Wyoming. And her name's Allison Contreras and her husband, Frank Contreras, are the ones that arrive home. And when they get there, they see that all the doors are wide open. There was broken glass and a bunch of stuff at the bottom of the stairs. So Frank goes upstairs and then comes back down screaming, saying, call 911. Someone is dead on our floor. But he didn't know immediately who it was which is either a testament to how gruesome this scene is or the fact that it wasn't cassie and there's just some random dead person there so that's concerning i would agree but allison runs upstairs calling 911 as she's running up the stairs and i'm assuming she probably had an idea of who was going to be upstairs but she gets upstairs and she sees the body on the floor of the living room in front of the television and immediately recognizes it as cassie When Allison finds Cassie, she sees a bunch of blood behind her head and her left leg. Her left pinky was almost fully cut off. And Allison starts CPR, but she was pretty sure CPR was not going to work. And the dispatcher told Allison to touch the body and find out if she had a heartbeat or anything. And Allison determines that there is no heartbeat for Cassie. Apologies if you'd already said, but what was the time gap between September 23rd or whatever it was and when when she got back, the cousin? So they arrived home around 1.15 in the afternoon on the 24th. So it was about two days. Gotcha. But if you remember, Matt left around 11.30 that night. So it was the evening of the 22nd, so early morning, the 23rd. It would have been like a day and a half about. Yes. And Matt tried calling around 12.15 in the morning and Cassie did not answer. So you can assume that it might have been before then. Allison goes outside to tell the rest of her family to stay outside. Apparently, Cassie's mom, Anna, and her stepdad, Victor, had shown up during this, and they were just, like, getting to the house, and Allison and Frank came out, and they're like, do not go outside, and then Frank says, Cassie was murdered. I'm hoping he said it a little bit more kindly or considerate than that, but... Frank was the husband of the cousin, right? Yes. Okay. Well, from the way that you're, you've been telling the story, there doesn't seem to be any characters that have any sort of real motive. You haven't mentioned anybody that's like on her bad side or any like 
suspicious people really i think the circumstances of the murder are a little strange like all the doors being open or just things like that but although in a case where somebody is out dog sitting it usually only leaves it to two possible circumstances of one for instance if these homeowners were like wealthy or had a nice house and someone's been like scoping out their house for a while they know their comings and goings they know that the house is now you know empty or mostly empty because they're out on a trip that might be the time to go in for a burglary or something and then you know that person could have gotten cassie could have got wrapped up as like collateral essentially um the other case would be someone who knows that she's there sort of like taking advantage of this circumstance type of thing but no no names really seem to jump out as like this person seems suspicious except for maybe tori who didn't have enough gas to go check out his friend that might be in danger so maybe that well that's where the detectives head went they decided that they're going to check out tori and brian the mystery has been solved here at crime over coffee our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is fire department coffee and you can get some as well and save 15 percent with our exclusive coupon code crimepod15 owned and operated by firefighters and veterans 10 percent of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders and with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. So they arrive at Tori's house on the 24th to interview him. But during the interview, Tori's dad, Sean, was present. And so Tori's story that he told the detectives was that him and Brian went to hang out with Cassie and Matt. They hung out for a bit and then realized that there would not be a party, which was what they had been expecting, apparently. So they decided to leave. And then he said that they went to a movie, but he couldn't recall any details from the movie. And then he slept over at Brian's house. And that, that's Tori's story. Criticize that, because I have some critiques. So temporary amnesia on a movie he just watched, but knows enough details about the night of the events to say that I was disappointed that there was no party, therefore I go home. So that's a very specific amount of amnesia to have. It's it's strange. Like, trust me, I am, I'm terrible at remembering movies. Ask Bryce or Abby. They know I can't remember movies, but... I like not remembering a single detail from the movie. It didn't even sound like he knew the name of the movie that they saw. Well, yeah, I mean, it's also easy enough to just be like, yeah, we went and saw this movie at, you know, 1130 or whatever. It was a late showing. It was a boring movie. Didn't really pay attention, I guess. But like, at least you would know something mm-hmm. or at least have like a receipt or bring up your bank record. Like, like if you really are trying to pardon yourself from this, you know, potential incrimination you'd think you'd go out of your way to try to anyways so obviously suspicious yes yes so now they're going to go interview brian so they get to his house on the 25th and they said that they're there to investigate cassie's murder and apparently when they started the interview brian started crying and then told police that he had visited cassie and matt but they had left once him and tori realized there wouldn't be a party and then they went to see a movie. He did have a name of the movie. He said that they went and saw the movie Pulse. But when his mom and the detectives asked what happened during the movie, he couldn't give them any descriptions. And that was the end of the interview. And then Brian wrote a statement about what he and Tori had done that night. So when you say that he immediately started crying, obviously it's likely that he would already know about Cassie's death. Well, this is only the day after. So he, it, it's possible word hadn't gotten to him yet, but you'd think that Tori maybe would have said this happened because well, it was a day after that interview. Or even, or even Matt or really anybody because they, they were friends. 
So you would think that he'd be like, like call him or text him, be like, dude, this just happened kind of thing. But so I, I guess that what I'm trying to say is I was kind of on that line of before they even mentioned why they were there, was he already crying? And that was like kind of a giveaway or was it pretty clear that he would have already known about this? It was after they had told him what they were there for, after they told him they were there for the murder, but before they actually started the interview process, like right when they were at the beginning, police decided that they were going to pretty much focus on Brian and Tori because their story seemed a little suspicious. So they interviewed Brian again on September 26th, but it was a different police department that time. And his parents were not allowed in the room. I'm kind of curious on the workflow of what this is like for interviewing people that you believe are part of a crime. Like at one point, are you allowed to hold someone for an interview and be like, no parents allowed, like you're being interviewed. Like how, like when does that line get crossed as far as being able to actually take someone in for interviewing rather than like, can we interview you and potentially get declined? If you have some sort of hard evidence that's going to say like they could hold up in court basically which they still don't really have i mean they have they forgot what movie they were watching like that's kind of the circumstance it's in now so which is i guess situational so that's why i mean he's not being held they're just wanting to bring him in for another interview but he could decline correct Hmm. okay but also if you did that then they would just get a warrant to investigate you so it's kind of pointless but you could do you think it would have been hard to get that warrant based on just situational evidence no Circumstantial I evidence. think that they could have been able to get a warrant on any one of the people that were involved there that were at the house that night, even if they want to investigate Matt. Because it puts them all in the same spot of the murder. Yeah. The night of the murder. Mm-hmm. And that might be enough. Yes. Okay. During this interview, he told police pretty much the same thing. He said that he had arrived at the house that Cassie was dog sitting at. And then he said that him and Tori had left and went to see the movie Pulse. But he still could not describe anything that had happened in the movie. And the detective said, straight up, we don't believe you that you went to the movies. You would think that he would bother looking up something about this movie or actually going to see it, watch a trailer, look up a synopsis or anything. But instead, he's just like, no, still don't remember. You would think, because at this point, I mean, it's been a day since he was interviewed. He had like 24 hours to go and look it up. Or if this was a case where one or both of them were involved, you would think that there'd be some like communication on like, let's get on the same page or, I mean, this is just playing devil's advocate of like, if you're going to try to cover up a murder, be smart and try, I guess. So at this point, Brian's like, crap, they kind of, they know about that. So... He says, okay, fine. We were not at the movies, but Tori and I were actually out finding cars to steal from. Why would you cover up one lie with a worse event? Because I think his thought process was, if we say we're stealing from cars, we're admitting to a crime. So maybe they won't look into us anymore to look for another crime that we could have been committed. Well, I'm hoping that they also discover they do that too. And then they get double prosecuted. They also asked if he knew anything about Cassie's death. And he said that they never went back to the house after they had left that evening. And so he didn't know and he had no involvement in her murder. And he left with his parents after the interview was done. But Brian's parents gave the detectives permission that they could search Brian's bedroom. During this search, they find a knife sheath under his bed. And he says that it belonged to a friend of his and it was not his. And he said that he didn't know where the knife was, but he believed that the same friend had the knife that the sheath belonged to. Then on September 27th, so once again the next day, detectives bring Brian in for a third interview. At this interview, they read him his Miranda rights and he agrees to speak without a lawyer being present. So during this interview, apparently Brian said that him and Tori had unlocked the door to the basement at Cassie's house that she was dog sitting at because they planned on going back to scare her and Matt. But he said that they never actually ended up going back. 
Brian also said that they had broke some ashtrays on the staircase and slammed the door to scare Cassie. So I don't really know what they're trying to say here because they were there, but they weren't there. I don't know if they were breaking the ashtrays when they were there, like hanging out originally. I mean, from my perspective, it seems pretty clear that what they're trying to do is come up with as much circumstantial events of like this would be like why the door is unlocked and you know this is why this might be this way and there's all these inconspicuous unsuspicious reasons why these things happened when in objectively none of that stuff matters nor is it helpful because i don't know it's it seems like they they think they're being like clever with like throwing out red herrings of like random little stories and stuff so i'm i'm not sure what they're trying to do but they're also very young and probably not very smart so well and i'm assuming they found broken ashtrays at the house and they were trying to figure out what those were for even if the police were like we found broken ashtrays i mean i guess if they ask that and then they were like i do recall why that happened that makes sense but if they're just bringing it up randomly i don't know why what's the point i'm gonna assume that maybe the police brought it up and they were like uh yeah it was us in case there were fingerprints or something on there i'm also assuming that's why they brought up the fact that they had unlocked the door to scare them because their fingerprints were probably on there I mean, I don't, I don't think in that kind of situation, fingerprints would be all that helpful because if they were there hanging out for a while, any doors could have been used at any time by anybody. Ashtrays could have been picked up or moved. Like, their fingerprints are bound to be on a lot of things. Yeah, I feel like that's pretty likely. I don't know the thought process that was going through their head. I also don't know the questions that the detectives were asking. And I know that these detectives are obviously trained to ask questions to kind of not necessarily trick you into telling the truth, but to kind of trick you into telling the truth. Well, here's a question I meant to ask earlier. At what point, what's different about this interview that they had to read their Miranda rights? Why didn't they do that earlier? I think at this point, they're getting to the point where they're like, we know that it was you, so we're reading your Miranda rights. Because they were, I think, maybe planning on an arrest. So Miranda rights have a lot more to do with once you're in the position where you are arrested or leading up to a potential arrest, then that's when that comes into play. Whereas if it's just like they're asking you questions, there's just no need. Yes. I didn't say it, but the interview on the 26th, so the day before, he also had his Miranda rights read to him. The only time that they did not was when they went to his house the first time and like kind of told him about the murder. And that also might... And that wasn't an official interview. I was going to say, that also might be the difference between just asking some questions and doing an interrogation as well. Yes. Because when they brought him into the police station, they had to ask if you wanted a lawyer present, and you have to know your Miranda rights for that. During this interview, Brian changes his story a little bit and ends up saying that they did go back to the house and says that Tori walked in front of him towards Cassie and then stabbed her. And Brian says that he thought Tori was just trying to play a joke, but then he saw the wounds and he no longer believed it was a joke. So Brian said that he just stood there and watched and wondered what Tori was doing because it was supposed to be a joke. They were just supposed to prank her. But Tori repeatedly stabbed Cassie with the knife and Brian said that he did not stab or touch Cassie, but that he did have a knife on him during the murder. And this just all of a sudden came up in his third interview? I'm going to say detectives started asking the right questions. I guess at this point you probably knew that he was discovered and his next best bet was to play it off like, yeah, I was there, but I didn't do the stabbing. So let me actually kind of tell you a little bit about that night. Tori and Brian were at the house that night, and at one point they had gone and unlocked a back door and then left. They eventually drove back to the house after and went in through the door that they had left unlocked. And when they got in the house, they turned the power to the home off to try to scare Cassie and Matt. 
so not only does that explain why the power was out, that explains why the dogs were acting weird because obviously someone was in the home and they kind of picked up on that. Yes. It also explains why Tori was whispering when he was on the phone with Matt because he was actually in the basement of the house that Matt was in. And that was when Matt said he would be leaving Cassie's house soon. So Matt and Brian and Tori were like, okay, we just have like a little bit of time left and then we can go and do it. And at this point, they'd put on these horror movie type masks that they'd gotten and their knives and they went upstairs. When they got upstairs, Brian slammed a door shut with the goal of scaring Cassie so that she would like come to that noise to figure out what was going on. And she didn't end up going into the room that they were in. So they decided to just walk into the living room. And when they walk in there, Cassie sees them and says, quote, who is that? I'll kick your ass, end quote. And then she walks towards them and they ended up stabbing her. And she was stabbed a total of 30 times and 12 of them were fatal. So obviously, besides the fact that all of this is really messed up, we also now know that this was clearly premeditated, yes. which puts it in its own class of murder. And I just I just kind of want to know why on that point now, because they were all friends. So to go with the point of it being premeditated on August 31st, so almost a full month prior to this, Tori and Brian had called their friend Joe and said that they wanted to go buy some knives to start a collection. And so they go to a pawn shop. And while they were there, Tori and Brian purchased four different knives. So that shows you that over a month, they've been thinking about it. And Who told that story? Who brought that information out? I don't, I don't know for sure if Joe brought that forward or... I wonder... Is there an age restriction on buying knives? No, I think they just w- invited their buddy to go along. Okay. So Joe isn't necessarily relevant. He just, that was just... He just went with them. And it's possible that Joe's the one that told the story. So it's unlikely that they were actually interested in collecting knives, because otherwise they would have already been collecting knives. So it was premeditated all the way back to the month prior, where they were looking at getting knives probably because they were planning something like that. So I'm curious how far back they knew it would be Cassie and still why it was Cassie. After they killed Cassie, they went to a rural area with the intention to hide all the evidence. And so they put everything in a bag and then set it on fire. Okay, so, I mean, we obviously know that fact. So when was that discovered or who discovered it? That's right where I'm headed. So during the interview, Brian tells detectives that they tried to dispose of the evidence and tells detectives that he'll show them where they buried it. So Brian went with his dad and detectives to the area that they said that the evidence had been buried and burned. And they dug out the hole that Brian had pointed out and said that the evidence was hidden in. And this is what they found. Some sort of matches that were right outside the hole. They weren't actually in the hole where everything else was buried. They found a pair of black boots, a pair of blue rubber gloves, a pair of Athletic Works brand fingerless gloves, a melted brown hydrogen peroxide bottle, a multicolored mask, a large dagger-type knife with a sheath, a silver and black-handled knife with the signature of Sloan written on the inside, a small dagger-type knife with a sheath, a black-handled serrated folding knife, a partly burned piece of paper with writing and pencil, a red and white mask, a single black glove, a pair of potentially burned Puma brand gloves, a blue plastic garbage bag, a partially burned black long-sleeved dress shirt, a Calvin Klein black dress shirt, a white and gray sock, a small piece of black cord, and a Sony videotape. And now a lot of the clothing and gloves had either Cassie's blood on it or DNA from Brian or Tori. So you mentioned they found a Sony videotape. I'm hoping at this point that that is some real evidence. Did they, were they able to gather anything from that, recover any sort of actual 
video evidence? Yes, they were able to repair it, and this is what they got. There should be no odd against killing people. I know it's a wrong thing, but hell, hell, you restrict somebody from it, they're going to want it more. We found our victim, and Saz maybe. She's our friend, but you know what? We all have to make sacrifices. Our first victim is going to be Cassie's daughter. She's going to be alone in a big, dark house out in the middle of nowhere. How perfect can you get? I, I mean, like, holy shit, dude. I'm horny just thinking about it. Hell yeah. I was 9.50, September 22nd, 2006. We know there's lots of doors. There, there's lots of places to hide. I locked the back doors. That's all I locked. Now we just gotta wait. I just killed Cassie. We just left her house. This is not a f***ing joke. I'm I stabbed her in the throat and I saw her lifeless body just disappear. Dude, oh I just killed God. Cassie. Oh, oh f***. That felt like nothing real. I mean, it went by so fast. Shut the f*** up. We gotta get our act straight. Okay. So Bryce, before I hear your thoughts on the video, I do want to point out that Brian was the one that said, I just killed Cassie, and Tori was the one that said, shut the F up, we got to get our act straight. Part of the video is subtitled, though, and obviously we put links to videos that we reference in our social media posts, so definitely go watch it if you at least want to see who they're subscripting as who. Um, you kind of get an idea of whose voice belongs to whom, but... The f one of the first thoughts I had was the fact that they said, we now have our victim, as if like there was a decision process, or the way they were talking about it, it's almost like they were thinking together of like, why is murder even illegal? And, you know, what could we do to prove why there's no reason it should be illegal? You know, who's someone that we could demonstrate this with? And then they just decided on Cassie as if it was just a choice, not something that they were like predetermined to do, but we know that they did that. That's why they unlocked the doors and... I don't know. So that part's a little tricky, but it could have also just, just been random banter on the camera. I do have one other conversation between the two of them. There is not audio of this. It is just like a script that's typed out that came from that camera. So Bryce and I are going to read it. Bryce, do you want to be Tori or Brian? Um, I'll be Brian because it's similar to Bryce. Okay. So this is from September 21st, 2006, around 8.36. So the video audio that we played for you is excerpts of this, but this is the actual conversation that occurred and kind of the flow of it. And so it's possible that they weren't able to recover all of the actual video assets of this, so that's why they can only show assets in the video. So this will fill it out a bit with some more context. So, quote, We found our victim, and sad as it may be, she's our friend. But you know what? We all have to make sacrifices. Our first victim is going to be Cassie Stoddard and her friends. God, turn your brights off, asshole. We'll let you, haha, -ha, we'll find out if she has friends over, if she's going to be alone in a big dark house out in the middle of nowhere, haha. -ha. How perfect can he get? I, I mean, holy shit, dude. I'm horny just thinking about it. Hell yeah, so we're gonna f***ing kill her and her friends, and we're gonna keep moving on. I heard some news about, insert Jane Doe too, she's gonna be home alone from 6 to 7, so we might kill her and drive over to Cassie's thing and scare the shit out of them, and kill them one by f***ing one, hell yeah. Why one by one? Why can't it be a slaughterhouse? Two by two and three by three, because we've got to keep it classy. Keep it classy. So yeah, it's going to be extra fun. You're evil. Yes, I am. So are you, dude. Evil. Evil. No, evil is an expression of God. That was another test you failed. Evil is not an expression of God. Yes, it is. That is bullshit and you know it. Evil of origin is a follower of Satan. There is no Satan. Is Satan real? 
then shut up. Then how are we supposed to express ourselves? Good and bad. We're we're bad. We are bad. That sounds so shitty. <laughs> we're evil. That sounds even shittier. Hey, we're not, okay? Then we are sick psychopaths who get their pleasure off killing other people. That sounds good, baby. We're going to go down in history. We're going to be just like Scream, except real life terms. That sounds good, baby. We're going to be murderers like, let's see, Ted Bundy, like the Hillside Strangler. No. The Zodiac Killer. Those people were more amateurs compared to what we're going to be. We're going to be more of a higher sources of Ed. Gein. Gein. Well... Let's say that we're sick and twisted. Oh, you know what Ed Gein's words were? What? He saw a girl walking down the street, right? Yeah. Two questions came to his head. Hmm. I could take her out and have a nice time with her. And then kill her? Skin her alive? Charm the pants off of her? Or I wonder what her head would look like on a stick. <laughs> Holy shit. It's creepy, huh? Kick ass. Murder is power. Murder is freedom. Goodbye. So now we definitely have some more context here. And I didn't realize it the first time we were watching the video, but... Between two of those excerpts, when it goes from like 8 something p.m. to 9 something p.m., it's also going to the next day. Because the murder, as you guys know, happened on the 22nd, the night of the 22nd. And this first excerpt that we were reading comes from the night of the 21st. So they did premeditate it at least the day before. So now we know that. They decided... It's not more when they bought the knives. Yeah. That, that could have been true, too, because that was like the month prior. So they, they had more than one person planned to kill, right? There was this other random person they mentioned they were going to do that first and then go to Cassie's I think was the order and they were going to kill her and her friends so they must have already known about this get together which could and would have been Matt yeah well they thought that there was going to be a party right which at the time I didn't know if that was just like an part of their excuse reasoning but apparently they were expecting many people there so it's not necessarily that it was Cassie that they were going for. It was it was a good potential of several young people out and kind of in the middle of the nowhere, wherever this house was, by themselves at, at night. But it was still part of their friend group, which is creepy. Yeah, which, I mean, I guess they could have relied on the fact that if they were caught, they could play it off as a joke and they'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, we know you. Terrible joke, but sure. They're very much romanticizing the idea of murder and being evil or bad and, and what that feels like. And this is this is very much a like a primitive animalistic idea that being evil or being bad is sort of like, you know, that the human condition of like what people have to constantly battle in order to be civilized. So like they just have very animalistic, primitive thought processes here. So it it could be some form of mental disorder or mental condition that they're suffering from or they could just have no desire whatsoever to be a normal civilized person and not kill yeah i agree with everything that bryce just said when i was reading it i found it just so creepy that they were just so willing to just kill their friend to the point where they said that it made him horny thinking about it that when i read that part in the clip that we did like i got shiver i felt so gross saying that but if you guys want to read like more of their conversations that they got, the link that's in our description that is the caselaw.findlaw.com has a bunch of excerpts from them talking. So you can go and look through that. All of their stuff is really, really creepy that they say. And I didn't want to read all of it. So that's that's up to you guys if you want to. So all this audio was found on this camera tape. So clearly there is substantial evidence. So... It sounds like the story might be pretty short-lived after this. Clearly, that's all they kind of need, right? Yes, but it took a little while to like repair the tape. So 
we're going to kind of go back a little bit from the point of them finding the tape to where they're bringing Tori in on September 27th for his second interview. At this point, he's only been interviewed once. At this point in the story, the detectives had the evidence that Brian had already taken them to. So at the beginning of the interview, Tori's saying that he has nothing to do with the murder. He insists that he and Brian were quote unquote going through cars. So at this point, I'm assuming that they have had that discussion like, hey, we're going to pretend that we were actually breaking into cars. But the detectives end up saying, you know, we have this evidence. We already know what happened. And during the interview, Tori's dad is in there and he says, is this like, is this accurate? Is this true? And they said yes. And at the end, the detectives take Tori's shoes because he was supposedly wearing them the night of the murder so they could investigate those. Around this point, Brian was also arrested because he had taken them to the evidence. And then they interviewed him again after he'd already been arrested. And he tried to say that he did not stab or harm Cassie. But he ended up changing his story after the detective said, did you stab Cassie because you thought Tori would turn on you? And at this point, Brian admits that he did stab Cassie. He said that he stabbed her four times, but he didn't want to. And he said that he stabbed her in the leg and the chest area. So Brian was afraid that if he didn't participate, Tori's already on this murderous rampage that he might also turn on him as a way of like, you're either involved or you're dead kind of thing. Yeah. So apparently Tori kept yelling, you need to stab her. You need to stab her. And Brian supposedly said that he couldn't do it, but then he ended up stabbing her in the leg. And Tori was like, that's not going to work. She has to die. You need to do more. After this interview, Tori was arrested and he asked to speak to a lawyer. So the detectives gave him and his dad some time to speak in private, but then they immediately arrested him. I can imagine that conversation with his dad was pretty short-lived because if it was any reasonable father, he might just be like, well, son, you've screwed up. Time to face the consequences. I'm assuming the dad was just kind of like, did you do this? And he was like, yeah. And then they just kind of moved on. So both Tori and Brian were charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. One of the details about first-degree murder is that it was planned, right? Yes, the So what's the difference between that and conspiracy to murder? Why is that added on? So it's because it was between two or more people. So they were talking about committing murder. They did commit murder. It was the premeditated. So there's the conspiracy because they worked together. They did request to be tried individually. And they were, but Brian's defense team had filed a motion to try to suppress his last interview because that was the one where he admitted to stabbing Cassie those four times. But the court obviously denied that. They're like, we're not going to just throw that out. And then they allowed the video of the interview to be part of the evidence. Both Brian and Tori were sentenced to life without parole in prison, which is a big one for a 16-year-old. I mean, were they technically tried as adults or... Can you still get those kind of charges being tried as a minor? So that's dependent on state. I don't know for sure if they were charged as an adult or not. Then in September of 2011, Brian filed a motion to try to appeal his sentence, but it was denied. On what grounds? That he was feeling sorry? I don't really know what his grounds were. Temporary insanity because of indoctrination by his screwed up friend. Okay, I guess that's possible, but I don't, they just, they denied it. Then in December 2017, Tori filed a motion to try to appeal the sentences. This was also denied. Tori and Brian are both currently serving their life sentence in the Idaho State Correctional Institution. They are in separate units, though. Well, that was an interesting one. It's very rare that you get to see sort of that inside look on two people having this sort of like conspiracy to murder type thing and being so young of their interactions in the car leading up to the murder. I mean, basically fantasizing about murder and what they think they will become by doing it as if being someone like 
Ted Bundy or the Zodiac Killer is something to aspire to. I mean, you could theorize all day about like what their upbringing is like or people in their family or immediate surroundings that might be influencing that or or who knows. It could just be some sort of mental illness between both of them. But um, overall, very interesting story. And that's why I wanted to not only put in the clip of the audio that we put in for you, but also to read the rest of it for you is because a lot of people discuss whether or not because they were so young, if they should have received life in prison, but it seems so much like they would have committed similar crimes. They were talking about committing all these other crimes. If they were put on the streets again, it's highly possible. It depends what your view of prison is. A lot of people see it as a place for rehabilitation and other people see it as a place to just put criminals and kind of forget about them. So since it is 16 year olds, depends on how you want to look at it. I mean, this is their prime adolescent years. So part of that could just be them bullshitting around with each other and saying stupid stuff to just be funny. So like saying of like, we're going to murder all these people could just be part of that. But at the same time, it's hard to take that chance. Absolutely. And I mean, it's it's been 14. It'll be 15 this September, a year since they committed this crime. And maybe they'll keep appealing their sentence and they'll keep, you know, reevaluating and seeing if they should be given another chance to come out on to be out on the streets. But it's it's all up in the air. And as of right now, they are still in prison. So if you guys have any thoughts about this episode or any suggestions of maybe cases that are similar you'd like us to cover, feel free to send in those comments or emails. Um, Let us know any other case suggestions. Thanks again, Landon, for your suggestion. And we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.